The Shakespeare Society and PlayShakespeare.com presents Shakespeare Talks. Shakespeare Talks. Today, my guest is David Crystal. He's a professor of linguistics and a writer editor, lecturer, broadcaster, born in North Ireland, currently lives in Wales with his wife, Hilary. He's the author of over 100 books of the English language and Shakespeare. His latest book, The Unbelievable Hamlet Discovery, is available on his website at www.davidcrystal.com. Good evening, David Crystal. How are you? Well, hello, Ron. <laughs> nice to talk to you. How was that for an intro? That was absolutely uh, perfect, Ex except it isn't the latest book, it's a sort of, it's two books ago now. Oh, one of his latest books, I'll correct myself. Yeah, I will actually, yeah, I'd like to talk about uh, uh, one of those latest books at least, and I'd like to hear about the other one. First of all, well, let me ask you a question I asked you earlier. What does the word retired mean to you? Because uh, it looks like you've got a lot of things going on here, and, and it doesn't seem like you're technically retired. You're very active. What does that mean to you? Well, if retired means um, leaving a full-time job where you're in the office every day, or in my case, in the university every day, well, I retired in 1984. Um, when the uh, Thatcher cuts came into the education system and turned or attempted to turn us all into bureaucrats and I <laughs> certainly couldn't handle that. I'm essentially a writer, I'm essentially a, a, a guy who likes to teach in a variety of circumstances and to write as much as I can. It wasn't possible to do it. So I left the full-time world then and became a freelance, as it were, an independent scholar, as people put it. And so I've been retired in that sense for 30 years. <laughs> and so uh, I can't see uh, any, anything, anything stopping that happening as long as health continues and interest in my work continues also. Great. Knock on wood. Uh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, so uh, 1984 is, is a lot. I was in high school at that time. <laughs> Just to put things in perspective. Um, so what is, uh, so uh, you're at the Helder Center uh, in Wales there. Is that a place you spend day-to-day uh, -day at, or is what is what's your position no, no, like there? No, I work from home, uh, okay. essentially, which is where I'm talking to you now. The okay. Heldra Centre, which means high town in Welsh, is uh, an old convent chapel that we refurbished as a community arts centre. And now, uh, in the beginning, this is 20 years ago now, uh, I was there an awful lot of the time helping to get it off the ground. These days it has its own full-time staff, full-time general manager and all the rest of it. It puts on a very wide variety of stuff, you know, plays, operas, ballets, films and everything. And it's used by the community for them to put on uh, whatever it is they want to perform. And uh, so it's just five minutes around the corner from where I live. Uh, and I'm there quite often, but, um, but I don't sort of work there. I, I work from home, as I say. And so what do, you, what, what do you do when you go there? What is, what is your relationship to, to the centre these days? Well, I'm chair of the management committee. Um, so the, uh, the staff, staff run the centre on a day-by-day basis. And uh, we have a management committee. It's a charity, you see. So there are trustees, and I'm one of those. And uh, essentially, my role is, is fundraising, I guess you'd call it, like all art centres all over the world. Right. They all need funding. And the business is to try and make sure that 
the various government bodies uh, stump up some funds to help the centre survive and we talk about policy and strategy and all those boring things but absolutely essential to make sure an art centre runs well. Great. So, but mo- you mentioned that most of your time is, is focused on writing and, and, um, and lecturing. It seems like you have an awful lot to say about the language of English and other people's writing, especially uh, in the realm of Shakespeare. Have you ever written any poetry, by the way? Oh, yes. I've got uh, t- t- two books of poetry uh, that came out way back. I had a, I had a sort of poetic period once upon a time uh-huh. um, and uh, did quite a lot. And uh, two books were published back in the 1980s, late 80s, early 90s, I think. The, uh, the point here is, is that I'm fascinated with, by all literary genres and I like to try my hand out at all of them. Um, but th- this goes way back to when I started as an undergraduate back in London years ago where I did a degree in English that was half language and half literature. And this is the be- was the beauty of that university college degree. So in the morning you might be studying phonetics or grammar, in the afternoon you might be studying Shakespeare or Dylan Thomas, you know. Sure. And it was that lovely blend of the two that, uh, that intrigued me then and has kept me going ever since. So although I'm most, I'm best known, I suppose, for the non-fiction works that I've done over the years, I do dip my toe quite regularly into uh, the creative side of things. So yes, I did a couple of books of poetry. I've written several plays. Um, I tried my hand on a novel once and failed. Uh, I'm not very good at that sort of thing. I've done several short stories. They worked all right. Um, So I like to keep that balance between the two. And uh, this is one of the reasons, I think, why Shakespeare is so appealing, because it's a way for a linguist to, on the one hand, do his linguistic analysis, and on the afternoon, uh, go and work with a theatre company and have all the joys that come with that kind of experience. Right. So um, one of the things that you seem to be fairly regularly active in is in the OP, the original pronunciation, I, I dare I call it a movement. It's a. Um, it's something that maybe you can elaborate on. I, so my my first question in that area would be, where did this where did this interest and where did this initiative even come from? What was the genesis of this? Like like most topics that I write about, the idea comes from somebody else. You, you know, language is one of those subjects which English is changing every day. Whatever it was like yesterday, it's different today. It'll be different tomorrow. That's one of the reasons why I end up writing so many books because the subject keeps changing all the time and people keep asking questions about it and original pronunciation uh, began with a phone call completely out of the blue from Tim Carroll who was directing Romeo and Juliet at Shakespeare's Globe in London in 2004 and they were planning on doing the, the whole run in modern English but the Globe, as many people know, is an attempt to replicate the original theatre that was on that site uh, in 1599. And they were committed to original practices. That's original music on original instruments, original costume, original movement around the stage, original everything except pronunciation, you see. And it had dawned on them that this was a gap that ought to be filled. And the reason why they hadn't filled it previously, this is 2004, remember, is because they felt that it would be unintelligible. And uh, they're a theatre that was only open six months of the year, open-air theatre, as we know, 
and they thought uh, we've got to fill the theater if we put on something unintelligible people won't come it'll be a failure so they didn't do it but when they realized from tim realized that op as we call it now um, isn't as difficult to understand as all that it's just like many a modern accent except it's an old accent um, they decided to uh, to have a go and so he rings me up and says we'd like to um, put a weekend of original pronunciation into the modern English run. I said to him, you know, how did you manage to persuade the powers that be to, to do it? And he looked me, he said to me, well, it was very easy. I said, if we don't do it first, Stratford will. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, there's this competition between the theatres, of course. Right. And so uh, I worked with the company on this OP production of Romeo. The poor actors had to learn the play twice over, really, because they'd already learned it in modern English, and now they had to learn it all over again. It was a very successful weekend in the talk back afterwards. Everybody loved it and said we must do it again. So the Globe did the next year. They put on Troilus and Cressida, the full run this time in OP. And in the audience of those performances were several directors from other parts of the world, especially from uh, the United States. And they fell in love with OP. And the reason they fell in love with OP was because OP was closer to American English than RP is. So many directors and actors have told me now, from the United States I mean, that they didn't feel they had a good solid ownership of Shakespeare because they couldn't do RP, you see, and Shakespeare had to be like Olivier and Gilgood and all of these people in a lovely accent, you see, very British. Well, no, it wasn't like that in Shakespeare's day. And once they realized this, they fell in love with the OP and said, we want to do a play. And so over the next 10 years, it's 10 years ago now, uh, there has been in the United States, there's been uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream in Kansas. There's been a Hamlet in Reno University once again. Uh, there have been altogether, there's been a Julius Caesar in, in Texas this year. There has been a, uh, a Winter's Tale in Baltimore, the Shakespeare factory there. Uh, there's been a King Lear, very cut, but a King Lear nonetheless at Bloomington at Indiana University. And Ben and his company and I went over to Savannah for the Savannah Music Festival to do an OP Pericles. So over the last 10 years, yes, it has become a movement in the sense that it's no longer the in the ownership of the person who was first there, namely me. It, it, it's taken off. It's gone in all sorts of different directions. And not just Shakespeare now, of course, but other people as well. So this last week we were in the Shakespeare's Globe in London with Ben and his company doing Marlowe's Dr. Faustus in OP and Henslow's Diary in OP. And so the movement has grown as a result of all that. So that was 2004, that, that production at the, of Romeo and Juliet at the Globe. Yet I remember seeing a TV series on the BBC from 1984, 20 years prior to that, where John Barton gave a demonstration, uh, a couple of demonstrations of how Shakespeare would sound to, you know, in the original pronunciation and how that original pronunciation was reconstructed and uh, reconstructed from rhyme and other things. So this actually, can you talk a little bit about the, the sort of the reconstruction process of that, which began, obviously, John Barton was a part of that. I believe that you guys were of the same school. And maybe you could talk just a little more about going back even further into annals of history of what would be OP. 
Yes, the OP movement actually started uh, as part of the comparative philology movement of the 19th century. Um, everybody was interested in how earlier periods of a language sounded, not just English, of course, but all, all languages. And in the 19th century, you get this huge interest in reconstructing early periods of pronunciation and grammar and vocabulary as well. And so the first attempts to actually do something in OP, you can date from the 1860s and 1870s. And one of the earliest and most famous of phoneticians of all, Daniel Jones, uh, around the turn of the century, that's 1900 and thereabouts, he, he was really keen on OP. He used to put on um, evening performances in his home in which he would uh, uh, regale everybody with the speeches in OP as he reconstructed it. Now, one of his students was my teacher when I was at University College, and John Barton was also taught in that system. So when um, I got my OP request from Tim Carroll, first thing I did was to call John Barton and say, look, this has happened now. Nothing has happened for 20 years since you did uh, Julius Caesar at Cambridge with the Marlowe Society and, and uh, all, the, all the other things that um, you've done since as party pieces, really. And so we met, and he said a speech in OP, and I said a speech in OP, and it was more or less the same. You know, we were delighted with each other, <laughs> as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, so the reconstruction um, is something, he, he had stopped doing it, because for all sorts of reasons. He went in other directions, and he wasn't so well, and all kinds of reasons. And so he was delighted to know that our OP was, was alive and well again. Incidentally, there was also Helga Kirkeritz at Yale, doing something similar in the 1950s. Uh, but again, nothing had happened after that. And so uh, we're in a situation now where all those techniques that had been developed over the years, over, the, over a century now, uh, provide us with the evidence for reconstruction. And there are four kinds of evidence. The first, indeed, is the rhymes that don't work in modern English, that must have worked in Shakespeare's day. Lines like, you know, love and prove in the sonnets. It has to be love and prove. And people say, well, how do you know it was love and prove and not louve and prove? Well, now you go to the second kind of evidence, which is from the writers of the time who actually described where the vowels were long and short and where the stress fell in words and things like this. And Ben Jonson, for example, who's uh, well known for his plays, but he also wrote an English grammar, uh, says at one point when he goes through the letters of the alphabet, when he gets to letter O, he says, we pronounce this letter short, as in uh, glove, love, brother, and prov. And, and so that's how we know it was a short vowel, not a long one. And then there are the puns that don't work in modern English that must have worked in Shakespeare's time. And there are the spellings, of course, very important uh, information you get. Spelling was not standardized in 1600. And so often it is a guide to pronunciation. So you put all these things together plus what we know about the way sounds change over the centuries as a historical phonologist. That's one of the things it's part of my business to know about. And you put everything together and you make a reconstruction of OP, which is, I guess, 90% accurate. One can never be 100%. There are always uncertainties here and there. The most I would claim for it is that it is a plausible accent which works well on the stage and people love it. And I think that's evidenced by the reactions, as, especially, as you said, by Americans who, as John Barton said in that video many years ago, and you just said, it's actually closer to an American accent 
and helps dissuade the notion that you have to speak in, in RP to perform uh, Shakespeare. It's amazing how many actors I've seen at auditions or even in performances that don't understand the difference between what is heightened speech and what is RP. They think they're one and the same, so they slip into, uh, even if it's subconsciously, an RP or RP-like accent while, while performing Shakespeare. And it can be quite distracting for me personally, and I know others that uh, feel that it gives it a highfalutin sort of air to it that makes it less approachable. Yeah, and this is one of the things that actors um, have difficulty with sometimes when they first encounter OP. I remember when we were doing Romeo, the actor playing the prince um, was was really quite nonplussed. He, he said to, I was in the rehearsal and he said to Tim, um, you know, I'm a prince. Um, I can't go using R sounds and, and, and things like that all the time. That makes me sound like a rustic. You know, I'm a prince. Um, and And... How can, how can I solve this? And Tim looked him in the eye and said, act. <laughs> and the guy playing the prince went, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course you can act the part of a prince regardless of the accent you've got. Right. I mean, for heaven's sake, uh, back in 1600, well in 1603, all the people in the court spoke with strong Scottish accents. You know, <laughs> uh, the, the RP didn't exist in the language until around about the year 1800 and right. it only came in as an upper class accent then. So before that there was no posh accent that people would use in order to display um, their position in society. Right. And once actors realize this, um, then indeed they start to act. Uh, they don't take the lazy way out and just use RP as a kind of simple way of showing you're posh. Right. Oh and by the way, it, it isn't just the Americans who um, fall in love with it because of this ownership issue. Remember this, that RP is spoken by only 2% of the population of England. So 98% of the people who go to a play at the Globe, maybe, you know, that sort of figure, are not RP speakers. And so when I was going around in the yard, uh, when we were doing Romeo, uh, I would ask people how they were finding it, and everybody, almost without exception, said, it's wonderful because we speak like that where I come from, regardless of where they came from. Right. In other words, they were hearing echoes of their own local accent in what right. they were hearing on the stage. And uh, one lad from London in a strong Cockney accent told me, he says, normally he says, with a big Cockney accent like this, he said, we go to the theatre and they speak posh, he says. But this lot, they're speaking like us. Well, of course, OP isn't exactly like that. Right. But the fact that it wasn't the posh accent made them feel that it was reaching out to them and warming them in a way that the traditional accent never did. Right. I think you see what you want to see in it. it it's sort of an equalizer. Yeah. Um, uh, so there's this, you mentioned this kid, Ben Crystal. Uh, who's he? Never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> now, dear Ben is... Um, now a son who is, whew, he's in his late 30s now, uh, he's a lad who always wanted to be an actor and we persuaded him that actors don't work and he better do something else first. So he uh, went to Lancaster University where he studied my subject, um, quite off his own bat actually, there was no pressure for me on this and he studied English language and linguistics. How he got his degree I don't know because he was always in the theatre. Um, <laughs> 
directing plays and acting and so on there, but he did, he got a good degree. And as a result, um, and then he trained in one of these postgraduate one-year courses to become a professional actor. Well, that's, you know, 15, 20, nearly 20 years ago now. Over the years, he has indeed acted from time to time, but, uh, and when he wasn't, he was able to collaborate with me on various books and articles and things like that, uh, better than working in a bar, you see, and all of that. Right. So we did Shakespeare's words together, the glossary and language companion back in 2002 or thereabouts. Um, and then we did the Shakespeare miscellany together. And in recent years, we've done some other books, not all on Shakespeare. Um, we've done a book on accents called You Say Potato. And most, but mainly on Shakespeare. Most recently, the big Oxford Illustrated Shakespeare Dictionary we did, which came out last year or the year before. And in the meantime, Ben has um, very strong interest in original practices and felt that there wasn't very much going on, um, in Britain at least, uh, to enable him to explore that in the way he wanted. I mean, the trend over here, I don't know what it's like in the States, is everybody wants to be original in doing Shakespeare. So what you do is you, you think, I'll do Merchant of Venice and I'll set it in a gambling casino, see, uh, which was a production at Stratford a few years ago. You do that sort of thing. Right. Ben felt that, no, we would need to get closer to Shakespeare. You need to replicate as much as possible the way in which Shakespeare would have worked at the time. Now, several others have done this, but not to the extent that um, to bring in the original pronunciation and everything like that. So here was a meeting of minds. Here was me interested in developing the OP side of things. Here was Ben, we're talking 2006, 7, 8 now, um, suddenly developing an interest in OP because of his interest in original practices. And the obvious thing was then to come together, which we did eventually. Um, ben himself um, went over to play Hamlet in Eric Rasmussen's uh, production in, in Reno in 2011, it was, and then decided that uh, in order to explore OP in the context of original practices in general, he needed to form a company. And so he did. He formed this company called Passion in Practice and uh, got a whole group of people together, actors from various shapes and sizes, friends of his, new acquaintances, who came together all interested in trying to explore what original practices were like, you know the sort of thing I mean, using cue scripts and things of that kind. And uh, they started operating in 2000 or whatever it was, 11 or thereabouts. And since then, have been putting on productions here and there. They've done several at the Globe. Uh, they've done several in various places around the world. As I say, we were in Savannah doing an OP Pericles with his company uh, earlier in 2016. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, he's he's taken off in, in that direction. Um, and I, I've seen every production he's done now, and I have to say, they've bowled me over. Um, I have seen... I have seen OP working, if you like, in the kind of workaday context where it would have been. It's so easy to say, I'll put on a, a modern production and just put some OP into it. Well, no, one has to see it in the, in the round, as it were, and seeing it actually performed in the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse, which he's done two or three times now, uh, has been the most rewarding experience. For me as a linguist, I mean. Sure. You know, I'm a historical linguist in this context, a historical phonologist, studying the history of sounds over language, always fascinating. I never thought for one moment it was going to be useful. 
And now suddenly I find it being used on the stage in a delightful sort of way. And it's, 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 it's given me the evidence I needed that all the work on OP actually had a point over and above the linguistic point of just finding out about it intellectually, as it were, to see right. audiences falling in love with OP and, and giving us standing ovations as they did at Savannah as a result of the, uh, the effect of the whole production. Sure. There's nothing more rewarding. I remember I saw that production in Reno with Ben doing an OP Hamlet, and I, the reaction was the same there. So it's great to hear that that reaction is pretty much universal. Uh, I've never seen a failed um, audience reaction yet, uh, and it's always full houses. And one of the reasons, I think, is that these productions are still fairly rare. You know, most people have encountered OP perhaps through one of the YouTube videos that we've done or something like that, but relatively few people have seen a full-scale OP production. And one of the things we've got to do next, I think, is put some of these productions, uh, make them commercially available. Um, people want to see these things. Paul Mayer did the Midsummer Night's Dream in Kansas, and that is commercially available, both as audio and as video. We want to do the same sort of thing. Uh, but it's, you know, it's expensive and it's difficult to, to, to organize this and yeah. nobody, nobody's going to make money out of it, but we do make money in order to do it. And so that's one of the things that he's going to do next, I think, to try and get the material out there. That'd be great. So you mentioned Shakespeare's words there. That's a nice segue into that project. That was back in 2002, you said, and then there was a re-release of that a couple of years later, 2008 possibly. Yeah, the Shakespeare's Words was a book, you see, a very big book uh, of <laughs> 700 pages, as big as Penguin would dare to make it. But it's still in its examples, each entry, you see, gives examples of, uh, of its usage in the various plays and poems. Still, only about a, a, or a tenth or so, or maybe a bit more, of the examples of an inst instance of a word being used could be fitted into the book. So the thing to do, obviously, was to make an online version. Yeah. Uh, which is what we did, and um, and of course you took uh, took up a connection with that, and so finally we managed to get all the uh, instances of a particular use of a word available for anybody to explore. No matter how many examples there are, they're all there in the database. So that was the first thing that, that happened. The um, the same kind of principle applied to the later sorts of publications. Uh, the thing about the OP movement is is that. When, when there's only one of you and everybody is getting interested in it, you get overstretched, as it were. There was a time a couple of years ago when the phone or the email would ring or buzz every two or three weeks from somebody saying, um, David, I've heard all about this OP. We'd like to put on a production of X. Can you help? You know, and can you help means making a flat recording of the play in OP, sometimes providing a transcription. The recording doesn't take so long, it still takes two or three days. Um, and the transcription could take a month or more uh, if I did that. And I, and I suddenly realized that, you know, I, I can't do everything. Uh, I need help here. Um, hey, everybody out there, all you historical phonologists, any of you interested in theater that yeah. would like to do some of this? A resounding silence. You know, and I haven't found yet another soulmate who has this balanced interest in linguistics and theatre 
to take on some of the jobs. So I've ended up having to do it myself. And I realized about five years ago that the only way to solve this was uh, to, to do a dictionary, basically. And, and that's been the latest project, uh, the, the Oxford Dictionary of Original Shakespearean Pronunciation uh, came out just, uh, we're talking in June 2016, it came out a couple of months ago, and this was a, a collection of all the words in the first folio, and all the uh, words in other parts of the canon that provided some of the evidence, so all the words that rhyme, for instance, in the poems and the sonnets and things like that. Um, putting them all there, giving the evidence, listing all the rhymes, listing all the spelling variations in the first folio. It took quite a long time, let me tell you, yeah. because these are the two main sources of evidence that we need. And then putting this together as a dictionary and then recording the lot. Uh, so if you buy the dictionary, uh, you open it up, there's a code in there which gives you access to the OUP website where you will hear every word and every variation of every word recorded by me. It took a week. And it was the most boring week of my life, let me tell you. <laughs> but it's a very useful <laughs> project wow. now. That only took done. a week, though. That's uh, that's actually pretty quick. <laughs> well, you know, six hours, seven hours a day. I was glad yeah. my voice uh, stood up to it, uh, yeah. actually. We recorded about 40,000 variants altogether, yeah. Wow. Wow, that's a, that's, that's a great resource. Is there a link to buy that on your website? Um, no, but you, what... What you have to do is you have to go to the, yeah, you can go to the book, the Oxford Dictionary of Shakespearean Pronunciation, and click on that. That'll set, a book will then get sent to you, or you can do it through any bookstore, of course, or from OUP directly. And when you, it's all shrink-wrapped, when you open it up, there is a slip of paper inside. Don't lose that slip of paper, because that's got the code, your unique code, that will give you access to the website. Uh, good to know. Excellent. So, um, by the way, I should say that the Shakespeare's Words book has also been the basis for an early collaboration between us in incorporating Shakespeare's Words into the Shakespeare Pro app. It was a it was a great step forward. That we were delighted to see that that development, and yeah. uh, you know, congratulations that you it came out so well. It's, it's been great. Nothing but positive feedback. I think I think the the one thing that people say about it is they say, what about onions? Or what about Schmidt's lexicon? Why don't you have those in there? So maybe you could tell me a little bit about the philosophy of Shakespeare's word. You know, what the goal of that was supposed to be. And well, that, that's, that's how the project started. You know, once again, it's a reactive situation for somebody like me. I never thought I was going to write a glossary or collaborate on a glossary of Shakespeare's vocabulary. But it started once again with, in this case, uh, Ben was um, on the train going up to Lancaster University. This was after he left. He was going up to, uh, I, I can't remember, direct a play or, or something of that kind. And he was preparing um, for this task. And he had onions with him in the train because that's all there was. And he was looking up some of the words that he needed to check up on for the production. And they weren't there. So he rings me up and says, Dad, you know, what does this word mean? What, what are the ramifications of this particular word? And I said, look it up in onions. He says, I have done and it's not there. So I thought, well, what do I do? So I looked it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, the online edition, found the sense that he was after and rang him back and we talked about it. And, and then we started to think about this as a problem. Why aren't there why are there so many omissions in onions? 
And the, the answer is very clear. Onions is writing at a time, 1911, where everybody goes to school and has a high quality grammar school education. They all learn Latin. They all learn uh, things about English grammar and things like this. Um, and Onions didn't put into his glossary stuff that he assumed every normally educated kid would know. Fast forward a hundred years, of course, and people no longer learn Latin in school. They no longer learn about the classics in the way they used to do and things like this. And so as a result, um, a large number of words that are difficult in Shakespeare, often encyclopedic words like the classical gods and goddesses and so on, you know, who was Venus, who was Mars? Um, I remember a, a lovely example that Ben and I talked about very early on when we were having an argument about what should be in and what shouldn't be in. And he said, uh, what about the Goths in Titus Andronicus? And I said to him, look, Ben, everybody knows who the Goths are. This is me, you see, going back to my early childhood. I learned all about the Goths in school. Ben said, oh, yeah, the Goths, they're people who wear big black eye makeup and so on and so yeah. forth. And I suddenly realized that life had moved on and that the difference between the two generations, him and me, was critical for this Shakespeare's words. Uh, that generation difference meant everything to us. He was able to look at these words from the point of view of a guy who hadn't had that classical education background. I was able to look at it from the point of view of a guy who had. And bringing the two intuitions together meant that we were able to cover the so-called difficult words in Shakespeare much more thoroughly than they could a hundred years ago. Right. And I think that's evidence because every time I see photos of a rehearsal in progress of a Shakespeare Shakespeare play, uh, somewhere on some table somewhere is a copy of Shakespeare's words. It's, it's amazing how how ubiquitous it's become, at least in the circles that I, I've you know I've been exposed to. Now we've we've seen the same the same thing. Uh, we've seen it at Stratford. We've seen it at the Globe and, and elsewhere. It, ha it does seem to have become the sort of industry standard, and we're we're, we're delighted with that, of course. Right. But again, it, it arose. Purely fortuitously, just right. out of that one phone call. Yeah, speaking of spanning the generations, I know you've written a fair amount about texting. And, you know, this newish shorthand language that has emerged out of smartphone revolution. Are you a texter? Oh, yes, yes, I, sh I sure do. But, you know, you're using the wrong, the wrong tense, Ron, I have to say, <laughs> has emerged suggests it's something recent that is still ongoing. You know, the latest evidence is that it should be, it emerged, it's history. Uh, I mean, people will still text, but the textees, the abbreviations, the, the crazy abbreviations that people were so um, keen on, the youngsters were so keen on in the early 2000s, they're just not being used these days in the way they used to be. You know, I go into schools quite a lot over here uh, talk to 16, 17 year olds, one of the things we do is I get them to collect uh, a pile of their texts and we analyze them linguistically because it's stuff that motivates them. And seven or eight years ago, yeah, these texts would be full of abbreviations like see you later and all of that and LOL and all of these and rolling on the floor laughing my ass off and all, all of this crazy sort of stuff. Right. I was in a school not so long ago and we did a collection of texts, there wasn't a single abbreviation to be seen. I said to the guys, where have your abbreviations gone? And they looked at me as if I was from a different planet and said, they're not cool. You know, I mean, they, they used to be cool. When we were young, they were cool. They're not cool anymore. 
And I said, why not? And one lad said to me, I'll tell you when I stopped abbreviating. I stopped when my dad started. <laughs> and that's the point, you know, adults have stolen youngsters' cool abbreviations. And as soon as that happens, they're not cool anymore. So all this textease that was so popular once upon a time seems to be on its way out over here. Yeah. Now, I suspect it's still pretty common in the States because you guys didn't start text messaging in that way until later than it did in the UK. But I think there will also, very soon, if it hasn't already happened, be a, a kind of disregard of these abbreviations. They'll start to die out, I think. I think so. You know, when the telegraph was in fashion, also a sort of a shorthand was in use, pretty common, commonly in use at that time, too. You would eliminate certain words or prepositions, certain prepositions or whatever, because you paid by the letter when you sent a telegraph or paid by the word. And uh, the less amount of text that was there meant it was a cheaper, uh, you know, it was a cheaper message to send. And so it's just interesting how that type of shorthand compares to the type of shorthand that's used in texting, which obviously doesn't necessarily have that, you know, that limitation on it. You're not paying by the word. A lot of uh, phone companies charge you per text, but you can basically fill that message up quite a bit. So it's, yeah, and things, and things have changed. Uh, I mean, predictive texting has come in, so you don't need to abbreviate so much. There will always be some abbreviations. I mean, there always has been in the language. Uh, abbreviating the word C to the letter C or the word U to the letter U. This isn't a modern thing. Right. You can trace that back 200 years in English. And right. so some of these will stay, but they won't be as common as they used to be. Right. So uh, I feel it's highly appropriate to interject a few of the famous... Uh, questions from Bernard Pivot in this segment here. The first of which is, what is your favorite word? <laughs> and the answer satisfies nobody because <laughs> I have none. Linguists don't have favorites, or at least this linguist doesn't. And the reason is because every word at some point or another is going to be a favorite. Right. The, the one that I'm currently studying is the favorite for that particular moment. Um, it's like going to a doctor and saying, you know, what's your favorite disease? You, you know, it, it, it doesn't, the question doesn't have any meaning for me, really. Right. I, I do like uh, to, to see innovation in vocabulary. So um, I, I, I do like to see the way in which uh, a new cluster of words evolves as a result of a stimulus. So uh, Twitter becomes... Um, tweeting and and the Twitter sphere and the Twitter verse and if you tweet too much you're suffering from Twitteria you see all all of these I, I like that kind of thing and that's what to go back is one of the reasons why I like Shakespeare so much because Shakespeare teaches us to dare with language to 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 create uh, all these un constructions that he uses you know unsex me here unshout the noise that banished Marcius uncurse and all of these and today what do we do we unfriend people and That's so right. this kind of creativity is if I had to choose a favorite but I would go for that but it's not for an individual word it's more for a process I think okay I'll take a Twitteria as your answer to that question <laughs> <laughs> So, so I guess the question, what is your least favorite word, would garner a similar response. Well, I guess so. Um, I, I don't have least favorites. Uh, people often ask me, you know, what, which bit of the English language do you not like? Or which, which uh, 
which bit of the English language irritates you? Because people generally do find some words and phrases and cliches and so on very irritating. Well, I have to say that I, I don't have any. Um, people say, you can't, you can't be serious. Uh, yes, I am serious. I don't have any word that especially irritates me. There, there are usages that might irritate me. I, I don't like it when a professional language user uses language unprofessionally. Uh, by that I mean, you know, I'm standing at a railway station and there is uh, an announcement coming over the wire telling me about which stations my train is going to go from. And I can't understand what the man is saying because he's speaking too quickly, for instance. Right. Uh, now that's irritating. Any human being would be irritated by that. The guy isn't being professional. He should be speaking more slowly and more clearly. Right. So yes, certain usages cause me a problem like they would anybody. But I don't actually find intrinsically any one particular word or piece of grammar or anything uh, hateful at all. Right. There's been a study that came out recently around people who have issues with the word moist. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen any of this or heard any of this kerfluffle around this word. Have no, you, I, uh, I, I haven't, but... Uh... I advise you to Google it there. There's plenty of discussion around it, how some people just have an aversion to the word and the sound that it makes. Well, uh, so sound symbolism is a very important aspect of, of language. Right. Um, the, uh, you know, there are certain sounds which people find intrinsically uh, beautiful. Uh, there are certain sounds that people find intrinsically uh, appropriate to uh, uh, ugly settings. I mean, you know, the sort of example I mean is uh, if, uh, if you're flying to one of the outer planets and you're told by mission control that there are two groups, two races on this planet, one is friendly to humans and the other hates humans. What are their names, you ask? One group are called the Lamonians. The other group is called the Gratax, which is the friendly group. Obviously, the Lamonians are friendly because they sound friendly, and the Gratax are hateful because they sound hateful. Now, this kind of thing does happen, and people do have associations with individual sounds and sequences of sound. Um, and why one comes up at any particular point in time, I've no idea. Uh, maybe there's an association with somebody who first used it or used it in some kind of uh, uncomfortable setting and it's traveled around the internet. I don't know. But this sort of thing does happen quite regularly. So what uh, sound or noise, continue with my Bernard Pivot questions, what sound or noise do you love? Well, the letter H, you see. To go back to the book you mentioned at the very beginning of our talk, The uh, Unbelievable Hamlet Discovery, uh, this was published on April the 1st, so that immediately signals um, the unbelievability of it to some people. If you don't know what April the 1st is all about, as actually happens in some parts of the world, they, take, they took that book very, very seriously indeed. Uh, this was an attempt to show, uh, to prove the point that Shakespeare suffered from octoliterophilia, which is an obsession with the eighth letter of the alphabet, the letter H. Uh, and what I reported in this book uh, was that I was walking around Stratford, fell full length on the ground in New Place, where they were doing some digging, and found in a drain uh, a hitherto unpublished manuscript of Hamlet, dated probably 1598, which 
in which every word begins with the letter H, you see. Um, and I was so excited by this discovery that I kept it to myself for quite a while, but then for the anniversary year, I thought, well, it's time to let the world share in this discovery. So I published it as a book. Um, people say, how does it sound? Well, take, for example, to be or not to be, that is the question which is pretty pedestrian, isn't it, really, as a use of language. In the original H quarto, as scholarship is calling it, it comes out as halt harakiri, have harakiri, hum, headache. And this is a really wonderful line, don't, don't you think, Ron? Uh, and, and the whole text is in that sort of vein. And so letter H and the sound of H earlier this year became definitely my my favorite word. Some people th think this book is a spoof, uh, but I, you know, I hope there's a number of serious people out there who will realize that there's some depth to it. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate? Don't have any hates. Dislike. <laughs> Don't, don't have any hate, I don't hate any accent, I don't hate any particular sound. Uh, I mean, that's the curious thing. L linguists love, uh, end of sentence. Uh, I, I hear a sound, I find it fascinating. If it's a really weird sound, I find... I, I suppose if I ha said I had to hate anything that, that I heard, it would be um, some of the sounds that come from the people who suffer from a particular kind of language handicap. For many years I, I worked with children and adults who had various types of language problem and sometimes when you hear a child or an adult struggling to come out with a particular sound and it's not coming out because of the nature of the condition that's preventing it so you hear sometimes these horrible sounds that you desperately want to get rid of and the speech pathologist of course is going to be there to help that that happen well those are the sounds that i think get to me more than anything else but that of course is because of the nature of the condition you mentioned the unbelievable hamlet discovery the h quarto uh some people are taking that as sort of a spoof could somebody uh these days actually falsify a play or pass off something that, that was written today as something that was written by Shakespeare. There's a play I did uh, a number of years ago written by Dale Wasserman and it was called Premiere and the story was about um, a writer who was a successful writer of Broadway plays and had just become so bored with the formula to creating and writing a, a successful play that he decided to create a forgery of a Shakespeare play and hired a guy to create the book, the actual manuscript itself, and found an quote-unquote expert to, to look it over and basically bless it. Uh, so, you know, could something like that actually happen these days with all the different... Yeah you know, different ways to analyze the linguistics of the time, the, all of the dating methods aside, if, if somebody were to come up with a manuscript that seemed to be from a physical standpoint from the period, could somebody put together a, a work or a series of works that could be convincing enough in your mind to pass it off as Shakespeare? Yes, I, th I think so. Uh, and indeed, it's, it's, it's almost happened, you know. Do you know um, Arthur Phillips, the novelist? 
Uh, ye, yes, I've heard of him, but I don't know much about him. Yeah, you, now, you now, wrote he, a, um, he, um, he did a book uh, about five years ago called The Tragedy of Arthur, which right. is a story right. about the discovery of a Shakespeare play. And in order to um, provide the basis for this, he actually wrote uh, a Shakespeare play uh, about King Arthur, um, which is print, reprinted at the back of the book. And he uh, checked this out. Um, I know about it because I was one of the people he checked it out with. And he asked me to go through the play and make sure, in a sort of Shakespeare's words sort of way, that he wasn't using any vocabulary that wouldn't have been used in Shakespeare's time. And I did. Um, and ended up uh, being a character in the novel for my pains. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that, that came out a few years ago, and it's a very good example. Um, if, if you sent it to somebody like Ward Elliot and said, put it through your system, Ward, and see uh, what are the odds of it coming out as uh, a genuine Shakespeare play, um, well, uh, it would come out, I suppose, as closer to Shakespeare than to anybody else, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't match all the variables. There are just too many. I, I, when it's not just vocabulary after all, but all the grammatical constructions, all the metrical constraints, putting all these together would be a really, really genius type job, uh, but I doubt, is. I think it's probably beyond the capacity of any modern writer. But you could still, nonetheless, produce a text um, which is so close to Shakespeare that a group of experts would have difficulty, um, not, not Shakespeare specialists who know every play backwards, I mean, uh, but a group of experts who know the period but are not especially Shakespearean, would have difficulty deciding whether it's like that or not. In fact, there's a guy in this country, a hip-hop artist called Akala, and when he goes into uh, schools, I've heard him do this several times, um, he takes some extracts from Shakespeare and he takes some hip-hop couplets, lyrics, and says to everybody, you know, tell me which is which. And actually, sitting there and listening to him, sometimes I'm saying to myself, was that Henry VI part one? <laughs> you know, a play that one doesn't know particularly well right. uh, early on in Shakespeare's career. And you're having trouble deciding sometimes, which yeah. it is. Yeah. So I could imagine somebody really developing that kind of approach and coming up with a work that might be actually very difficult, you know, a lost Shakespeare play, a sort of Cardinio or something, sure. um, suddenly coming to the surface. My unbelievable Hamlet discovery, I think, would not pass. It would fail all of Ward Elliot's criteria. Right? <laughs> Uh, it's been really great to chat with you, David. One final question from the Bernard Pivot questionnaire. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, your pronunciation is ethereal. Yeah, something, something along those lines. You got it right. <laughs> In the beginning, after all, was the word. Uh, and one would have to pronounce it uh, exactly right in order to get in there, I, I think. And I hope I've managed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much, David. And for more information, you can visit David Crystal's website. That's www.davidcrystal.com for information on Shakespeare's words, the Oxford Dictionary of uh, Shakespeare's Pronunciation, and OP, The Gift of the Gab, one of his recent books, and the unbelievable Hamlet discovery, the Hamlet H. Quarto. 
Thank you for listening. Thank you. You've been listening to Shakespeare Talks, brought to you by the Shakespeare Society and PlayShakespeare.com. Shakespeare Talks.